You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference podcast. The 11th annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Maynooth University on the 18th and 19th of August, 2023. The conference was generously supported by the McMorris Project, the Irish Research Council, the Department of English at Maynooth University, the Arts and Humanities Institute at Maynooth University, and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the conference was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. You can access an archive of more than 250 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Philip McAguill from Nith University, entitled English or Irish, or Both? Insights from Gaelic Poetry into the Cultural Identity of the Anglo-Norman Nobility in Munster, 1569-1607. I remember when I was brainstorming ideas for papers to give at this conference and I thought, oh, a discussion on cultural identity will make for a fascinating paper. Um, And I don't think I quite appreciated at the time just how complicated the topic of identity is or how much primary source material there there is for us to draw from. Also, the title, English or Irish, suggests that I might be coming to some kind of conclusion at the end of this paper, saying, oh, yes, these families definitely identified as English or Irish. Unfortunately, I'll be coming to no such conclusions today. Sorry to disappoint you. (laughs) What I will be doing, however, is exploring uh, examples of the vast amount of multilingual sources which survive from the province of Munster uh, from the late 16th and early 17th century, with particular attention to Gaelic poetry and perspectives, Uh, Any sources which provide us with insights into how these noble families viewed themselves, how others viewed them, um, and their place in the world around them, and how they might have perceived the overwhelming social and political changes which were taking place at that time during the Tudor reconquest of Ireland. I want to start by giving a bit of context, and I won't spend too much time on this, but uh, and also clarifying the noble families which I'll be referring to. Um, So after the Norman conquest of Ireland in the 12th century, the island as you can see, was shattered into uh, many smaller lordships, some of which were ruled by the descendants of the old Gaelic families, uh, such as the Imael, Ihonel, O'Brien, McCarthy, and so on, and others under the rule of the descendants of the Norman invaders, who would later be commonly referred to as the Anglo-Normans, or the Old English, or the English-Irish. Before the Tudor conquest of Ireland, in the 16th century, however, those families had been largely assimilated into Gaelic society, uh, despite efforts to achieve the opposite. Uh, I will, of course, be focusing on the province of Munster, and so on the spotlight for today's discussion um, is families such as the Fitzmaurice, Fitzgeralds of, De- uh, Fitzgeralds of Desmond, Burke, Roach, Barry, Power, and of course the uh, Butlers of Ormond. And of course, these weren't the only Anglo-Norman families in Munster in the early modern period, uh, but they're perhaps uh, some of the biggest players. Um, As I mentioned, I'll be showing insights from Gaelic poetry and perspective, but I wanted to first um, look at some of the kind of insights we can get from our um, late 16th, early 17th century English language sources with regards to cultural identity of these noble families. These texts... Uh, I'm drawing from deal with the extent to which the English uh, they are being perceived as English or anglicised. Firstly, these noble families were commonly referred to as English Irish, 
and our English sources speak about them um, as distinctively separate from Gaelic families, who are called the Irish, or sometimes the mere Irish. And you can often get the sense that when the English write about the English-Irish, there's a greater sense of expectations from them to become anglicised, which they wouldn't expect from the Gaelic uh, families. That's my impression, at least. Uh, The first text is a fascinating one about uh, eating habits among the English-Irish, as described by Fiennes Morrison, Um, habits being similar to or different from uh, the English themselves. So uh, the English-Irish, after our manner served at the table, joins the flesh cut after our fashion. So drawing a similarity there, goes on to say, but they drink not English beer made of malt and hops, but ale. Goes on to talk about cheese and butter. Uh, The cheese or butter commonly made by the English-Irish, an Englishman would not touch it with his lips, though he be half-starved. Uh, and so we see Morrison looking for similarities and differences uh, between the English and the English-Irish. My second text deals with the issue of language, and of course when we're talking about cultural identity, uh, language, the language a community uses is very important. Uh, this one is a text by Robert Payne, uh, and he says, uh, most of them speak, uh, this is referring to um, people of Limerick, most of them speak good English and bring up their children to learning and they reform themselves daily more and more after English manners. The text gives a very promising indication to the colonial administrators that their efforts are paying off and the populace is becoming more English. We get a similar impression from uh, Sir Henry Sidney when he's uh, entertained at Barry's Court at Christmas 1583, and he lists some of the men who were present, so including our Anglo-Norman leaders. Um, so we have the Earl Desmond. Uh, like Barry, Roach, uh, Fitzmaurice. Um, and he goes on to say, I thought, uh, I might have thought myself rather in the city and county of York than the city and county of Cork. I found such humbleness in them and willingness to become English and to live uh, under English law. Of course, not all English language sources paint such a positive uh, picture of uh, progress of the Anglicisation of Ireland. So returning to the issue of language, uh, Morrison, again, uh, writes about the lack of progress uh, in Munster, where he writes, the law to spread the English tongue in Ireland was ever interrupted by rebellions. The, Ir- the mere Irish, referring to Gaelic families, uh, disdained to learn or to speak the English tongue. The English-Irish, uh, though they could speak English as well as we, uh, commonly speak Irish among themselves. Um, the citizens of Waterford and Cork have wives that could speak English as well as we, uh, bitterly to chide them when they speak English with us. Uh, and even this comment, uh, accepting those in Dublin, uh, even comes a contradictory, um, as contra- con- contradicted in other sources, like this quote from uh, Lord Chancellor Gerard in 1578, where he says, All English, and most part with delight, even in Dublin, speak Irish and are greatly spotted in manners, habits, and conditions with Irish states. Um, even Spencer wrote about the tendency for the English sooner become Irish than Irish to become English. Um, as it says here, since the uh, English be sooner drawn to the Irish than Irish to English. 1596. And so from this very quick glance at our English sources, it's very difficult to come to any real conclusions. Um, we're viewing these families now under the lens of colonial administrators. They're working towards the Anglicisation of Ireland. So when they see a shift towards English manners and language, they write about it. Likewise, when they notice a lack of change or shunning of English manners or language, they write about it. Um, And it seems particularly worth writing about to them when it's among who they call the English-Irish, 
uh, who they seem to have a greater sense of affiliation. Perhaps affiliation, but certainly higher expectations. And with this comes the need to expand the sources we're using to study this question and to study these families. So um, moving from English language sources to Gaelic sources, you're immediately presented with a uh, terminological uh, divergence. So in our English sources, as we've seen, uh, there's generally three terms that we come across to describe the different types of people, English, English, Irish, Old English, and Irish. Those are our three groups. Uh, when we delve into our Gaelic sources, we notice the words used to describe the people in Ireland becomes more diverse. Uh, and this should come as no surprise, as the natives of any nation uh, should be better at describing the groups and tribes within that nation. So we have Sassanach, an Englishman, a Gaul, uh, a Gaul or a foreigner, a stranger, uh, Seanagal, which is our uh, old Gaul or old English, a Gael, a Gael, uh, and then um, the term Eirinach, uh, Irishman, which is a modern word for Irishman or Irish person. Um, we see that in Gaelic writings, the term Gaul, Seanagal, and Eirinach are all used when referring to Anglo-Norman families, and never uh, Gael or Sassanach, at least not any sources that I find. And I find this enlightening in itself. And the idea of Eirinach uh, is really exemplified in writings uh, such as that of Shafran Cateson, first half of the 17th century. Cateson himself was Anglo-Norman, uh, of Anglo-Norman descent, uh, and writes about how Gaels and Seanagall, or the English-Irish, fall under this umbrella term of Eirinach, or Irishman. And that's the translation. Um, though both uh, the Gaul and the Gael were, patron were patronising Gaelic poetry from the beginning of the early modern period, we find references to them in poetry as two very distinct groups. Um, such as in this 14th century poem by Gopher Fiona Dali, to uh, Morris McGarrolds or Morris Fitzgerald, the first Earl of Desmond. Um, yeah, 14th century. The poet recognises that the poets of Ireland have two choices of patron, Gael or Gaul. And he says, uh, in the poetry to the Gaul, we promise that the Gael will be exiled from Ireland. and the poetry to the Gael, we vow the Gaul will be driven across the sea to the east. <coughs> um, so this earlier material helps us, helps to kind of, uh, I suppose, ground us in understanding their history. The rest of this paper will be drawing from Gaelic poetry uh, from our period, so the period of conquest, 1669 uh, to 1607. So the, point, the first point that I'd like to make um, at this stage is it's important for us to avoid the initial assumption that because it's Gaelic poetry written within a Gaelic system, that it's going to be inherently pro-Gaelic and anti-English, because uh, it wasn't, as I'll be demonstrating. Uh, the content of cla classical Gaelic poetry was subject to the wishes of the patron because, uh, of course, the patron commissioned it, was paying for it. Uh, so although there are some examples where this is not the case, one can generally assume that the message of a poem will reflect the view of the patron. And this is why, regarding the question of identity, personal identity, Gaelic poetry can provide such valuable insights. Um, so I take this poem uh, as our starting point. This is Kia Shinnekart's Erich Nail. Uh, by Donald MacRudiga, um, uh, written during the Desmond Rebellions. The poem is very clearly anti-English, as you would expect, uh, as the Fitzgeralds of Desmond were in rebellion against the English at the time. A fascinating theme of this poem is that the poet asserts uh, that despite being descended from outside Ireland, being descended from, uh, being descended from Britain, 
there is no family more Irish than them. Kiavan of Machna Garrett, Nachpor Andulchus there, which race except the Fitzgeralds is not alien to Ireland. Uh, and this complaint that Ireland has been given up to the English, uh, so if the seat of kingship has been uh, already given up to the English. So there's our anti-English uh, sentiment. And then on the other hand, we have poems like this one, Banach de commissioned by the Barry family, composed by Don O'Dolly around 1604. Uh, these quatrains demonstrate how poems were often very pro-English, uh, as that aligned with the political stance of their patron. Um, so here we don't see the poem... Uh, we don't see the addressee of the poem, David O'Barry, referred to as English or Irish, unfortunately, because that would have been great. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, he's referred to as Munsterman, uh, Mivnach, uh, and you can clearly see that his uh, loyalty and cooperation with uh, the English crown is reflected in the poem. So, so, advice of the English, who are equal in nature to you, their hardness of law, pure rules, skillful action of the men of England. And there are lots of examples of these kind of pro-English sentiments within Bardic poems at this time. Uh, the next poem um, I'm looking at is by Donal MacDara MacBrudega, uh, and this time it's to Padraigin MacMurish, or Fitzmaurus, uh, composed again during the time of the Desmond Rebellions. Uh, and this again draws alignments and, distri- and distinctions between the various groups. Uh, our first quatrain uh, separates the Fitzmaurus from the Gaels. They're not a Gaelic family. Um, and then this claim that they are from, uh, they have this kind of Grecian descendants, um, which is kind of contradicted then in the next line where he says he's descended from Partholan. Anyone who doesn't know who Partholan was, he was one of the first people to set foot in Ireland, according to um, a kind of a pseudo-history. Um, so again, this idea that the Fitzmaurices have this long Irish heritage, that they've been here before anybody else. Um, at least that's my reading of this. In the second quatrain, the Geraldines are not to be trusted, but they're recognised as his kinsmen and relatives. Uh, and then the third quatrain is Fostridge. Uh, Padraigin McMurray's Fostridge years in London are mentioned, uh, as well as the anger and enmity between him and the English and the Butlers of Ormond. <clears throat> While some talk of enmity with other groups, others are celebrating their being at peace with others, such as this poem, Tidavit Rostja, or David Roach, um, by Donald O'Dali, uh, where one of his most noted achievements uh, as a leader was keeping peace and protecting his territory. Um, and we see it there in Quatrain uh, 26. Uh, so our peace with both the Gaels and the foreigners, or in the Gaul. Um, a keen cooperator and supporter of English efforts in Ireland was this man, um, Thomas Butler, 10th uh, Earl of Ormond. And he's a really fascinating character, I'm sure most of you know, uh, among the Anglo-Norman descendants of Ireland. So like Barry, Roach, with Fitzmaurice, Fitzgerald, he was a patron of Gaelic poetry, and he commissioned one of the finest and earliest examples of Auron-type poetry in the 16th century, entitled Tagum Tomas Rafa is Rograd. So when I was doing research for this paper, um, it was um, hard to know what to do with statements such as this one uh, from his DIB entry. Oh, Ormond, he, not that he was ever meant to become Irish. Um, and I think... What he's probably trying to get at is he's not meant to become Gaelicised, but uh, yeah, I still don't know what to do with statements like that one. But I thought I'd show, show you anyway. Uh, <laughs> in this poem, uh, which I mentioned, uh, the Auron poem, uh, which is again very pro English, it mentions his fostered years in London and how much he benefited from that and his uh, links to, uh, to London. Um, but we see 
repeated use of the word Ernoch, which we saw earlier on, the word for Irishman, uh, which is used to describe Butler himself and his surroundings. So a translation for you. So uh, high-spirited, tough-bodied, swift and vigorous Irish charioteer cavalry. Um, and down at the bottom, uh, Ormond is described as Antin Urchodig, Erunda, a slender, pure-hearted Irishman. Later in the poem, Butler's parade is being distinct from and better than the Earls of England uh, and elsewhere, uh, boasting his Irishness. So he's uh, separated from the English Earls and it says it's normal for them, everybody, to envy the Irishman. Uh, I mentioned earlier how in our English sources there's sometimes a sense of fraternity when the English write about the English-Irish and this is also true for a Gaelic people writing to and about the English-Irish. Um, I've this letter uh, from A. O'Neill, Hugh O'Neill, uh, to Thomas Butler or Thomas Butler. Again, the same, same character. Um, it dated May 1600, uh, and from A. O'Neill's perspective, Butler was acting against his own country and therefore did not view Butler as English himself. But again, this is the annoying part about um, questions of self-identity. The people that we've looked at so far today... Uh, don't refer to themselves as anything, um, at least not in texts that survive or any sources that I found. So we're, we're stuck with whatever uh, other people wrote about them when we're studying this question. Uh, a final issue I'd like to briefly discuss before I finish up uh, is the issue of names. So uh, there's little closer to each of us individually as regarding our personal identities uh, than our names. Uh, in English historiography, of course, Gaelic names and place names um, are anglicised, uh, and you have to wonder to what extent does anglicisation of somebody's name uh, affect how we view them. So here we have, uh, for example, David Barry and David Roach. Uh, if we look into our bardic poetry, their names and their titles are given to us. Uh, so we have Dalvif, Bichund Barach. So there we have his, his uh, Gaelic name and Gaelic title. Uh, and again with David Roach, David de Roche, Bechunt Balan Chashlein, his name and title given in Irish, which you'll never see written anywhere else apart from in a bardic poem, I suppose. Um, similarly, we have names from the uh, power family of Curramore, County Waterford. Uh, and if we're reading about any of these people, we'll see their names as uh, presented as Elizabeth Power, Richard Power, Catherine Power. Uh, and from our Gaelic sources, we have all of their names. Um, so we have Elise Puer. Uh, Richard and Kathleen. Uh, so we have all of their Gaelicised names there in our Gaelic poetry for us to draw from. Um, the same applies to the likes of uh, Thibault Burke, or Thibault uh, Burke, his name within a Gaelic poem, and our friend uh, Thomas Butler, uh, Thomas de Butzler, and his title, Speak on Dorlish, Yerla Urvon. Uh, we already know that there's a lot of work to be done in the process of decolonization, and I mean moving away from basing our understanding and our studies of this period, uh, basing it on the Anglophone archive uh, and on the Anglicised. So projects like McMorris have made a terrific start uh, to this project, um, and many people in our database are searchable by both their English names and their Irish names, um, as much as we could. But again, there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and so it's difficult for me to present even a general conclusion to this question, as I said, uh, of cultural identity. We've barely, I, I, today I've barely scratched the surface of potential materials we can draw from. 
Uh, but more so than that, I believe this question of identity ultimately will boil down to the individual. And it's uh, something that can change over time. So as much as we'd like to, uh, we can't generalise a family or a group of families as being generally identifying as English or generally identifying as Irish or any blend of the two. What I can say, however, is that although these families operated within a Gaelic society, and uh, within a Gaelic society, the poets of Gaelic Ireland never called them Gaelic or Gael. And although they operated within English society, the poets never called them Sasnach or English. Um, so it's my hope that I've demonstrated the necessity to approach these questions, drawing from all sources which are available to us, and prevent ourselves from drawing conclusions based on what historians might have said, based on mostly or perhaps entirely English language sources. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. For more information on the conference, go to TudorStuartIreland.com. You can access the archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify.